2: Right now on Fast Buying or Crying, what is the real read on consumers and retail stocks? One Wall Street heavyweight says negative headlines about the health of the consumer are overblown. The details from that report coming up. Hot steel, U.S. Steel, rejecting a more than $7 billion offer from rival Cleveland Cliffs. But now another bidder putting an all-cash offer on the table. Will X sign off on a sale and will regulators allow a deal to get done? We will debate that. And later, Tesla's summer slump is picking up steam. NVIDIA's surge ahead of earnings. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis not ready to bury the beef with Disney quite yet. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live from the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Fano and Eisen, Dan Nathan, Gaidami and Julie Beal. And with retail earnings season about to kick off, we start off with some potential reasons to believe the death of the consumer has been greatly exaggerated. Bank of America today upgrading the discretionary sector to an overweight from an underweight, laying out a host of reasons. They point to growing hopes for a soft landing. No recession means more consumption, they say. Plus, the majority of consumers' biggest debt burden, their mortgage, are in fixed low rates. So not subject to moves in bond yields. Analysts also highlighting rising real wages and earning speeds in the discretionary sector. Should, should this signal that we're in for some strong reports next week? Guy, maybe we're just too worried about the consumer when everything is just it's just fine in consumer land.
3: I wake up worried, Melms, as you know. I know. <laughs> now, listen, I understand, I understand why there's reason for optimism without question. The U.S. consumer will always spend if nothing bad is going on. And I always view it through the lens of the stock market. When there's an event in the stock market to the downside, that's typically when consumer behavior stops on a dime. And 73% of our economy is driven by people buying things. Who's the winners? Well, it's pretty clear in terms of the stock. I think Stiefel had a report out 71% of households in this country earning $100,000 or more shopped at Walmart compared to like 50% at Target and 30%, I think, at Home Depot. Walmart wins. Target loses. Walmart's an all-time high. Target's $3 away from a 52-week low. TJX on that side wins as well. So it's obvious what's going on. Those retailers will do well in this environment. The health of the consumer, I don't know, trillion dollars in credit card. We're fighting inflation, adding more debt. That works until it doesn't. It's interesting. You mentioned Walmart,
4: and, and again, a, a truly uh, magnificent performance, especially relative to some of its peers, like Target, which you mentioned can't get out of its own way. I think of that more as a consumer staple, right? They were benefiting when inflation was a big thing, and now they're benefiting now with maybe a, a moderating consumer, if you will. We've heard about the trade down and all that sort of stuff. But if you look at the XLY, the ETF that tracks the consumer discretionary space, sometimes you can get It's a bit of a mirage here. If you look at the top holdings, Amazon's about 24 percent. Tesla is about 18 percent. Home Depot, McDonald's, Lowe's. Then you start Start getting into some something that maybe feels um, a bit more discretionary. If you look at the XOI, just made a new 52-week high um, last month or so. It's come back a little bit. That largely has to do probably with Tesla. So when I think about Amazon and the results that they just gave us, they did tell us the consumer pretty good. That strength came in their retail business, but it also had to do with their margin on the retail business. And at some point, it might speak to their ability to pass forward certain costs at discount right to a consumer. So that's why I think this week is really important because we're going to get a wide of a whole different, you know, different retailers here.
2: Yeah. And what is the incentive for a retailer at this point to be bullish? I mean, results could have come in okay for the past quarter, but what is their incentive to be bullish when there's so many things on the horizon like the repayment of student loans, for instance, starting in October?
1: Yeah, to your point, Mel, it's really all about like kind of managing forward, and managing what those expectations are going to be. And I, and I don't really see a whole lot of a reason for them to come out and be too bullish and then run the risk of disappointing investors. I mean, that's literally the last thing that you want to do. We've had some conflicting data. We've had the CPI print and the PPI print, which seem to tell slightly two different stories. We've had Amazon that tells the situation with cloud, and we've had some of the other um, uh, SMH components come out and not be uh, as glowing as we would have expected. The other thing I'll say is, like, there seems to be somewhat of a K-shaped recovery when it comes to the consumer. We talked about the trade down. You have people that... Have the tail ones up interest rates. They have debt that's fueling asset purchases, and those assets are, you know, uh, are being accretive in this environment. And you have a completely different cohort that has debt that is fueling purchasing. And I think that's the pocket that we really need to focus on. And if there are cracks, it'll likely be that cohort that starts to show them initially.
2: Yeah, Julie, what what's your take here? Because I feel like this desk overall has been fairly cautious slash negative when it comes to the U.S. consumer. Um, including yourself. So what do you say yeah. to all these arguments put out by Bank of America today?
5: I, I think, you know, Savita is actually used to be a colleague of mine at Merrill Lynch. And so I'm loath to really ever disagree with her. But there are some, I think there are some concerns that I have. And I think it's a little bit to Bono's point on, it depends who you're asking, right? So if you look at real liquid assets. If you're in the bottom 99%, they have grown two to 3% since the beginning of COVID. If you're in the top 1%, they've grown 23%. So that's a pretty big differential just in terms of liquid assets. And the other thing to think about is what is consumer discretionary doing relative to income? And right now it is at a high that it hasn't seen in 30 years. And in order for it to kind of return to normalization, it would have to drop 10%. So I think, you know, there's the the issue of the stocks, which I think is more what this stock call is really about and then there's the issue of the fundamentals and I think we should be concerned about some of these consumers because we're really clearly racking up a lot of debt and at some point that has to come due.
2: I mean, part of the argument also is that is that fund managers are extremely over, um, excuse me, underweight consumer discretionary. So it's a positioning that plays into this whole thing too, in terms of this sort of expected snap in the stocks.
4: Yeah, and you know, the stocks are interesting because I, I think that what we learned in Q2 earnings season, there was a lot of dispersion, right? A lot of names that you want to kind of bulk, you know, put together here. A lot of stocks act in different ways. And we just mentioned Walmart and Target. At some point, doesn't, and that guy, this is a name, maybe it's a question for you, sorry. Um, maybe it's a question for a guy. At some point, maybe is Target so <laughs> bad that it's good if they come in line let's just say they don't even raise guidance and the margins are okay stock trading at 13 and a half times next year's earnings seems reasonable relative to a Walmart that trades above a market multiple you know many turns versus a target or something like that it almost seems like you want this stock in a kind of messy market to sell off and buy it rather than buying Walmart at an all time high
2: but the but the merchandise mix may not is mm. i mean it's definitely not as conducive as a right. Walmart and I think, well, I'll pose the question oh, to you, sorry. thank you, Dan. Thank
3: you. Is this a would but you when rather? When it
2: comes to valuation, yeah, in this environment, do you think that the sacrifices that you make in terms of sacrificing the more beneficial mar- you know, merchandise mix that Walmart has for the valuation that Target has?
3: Yeah, I'll stick with Walmart, though. If you if were playing the game, I'll play it correctly. They, they, they fired up the graphic on this Monday, yeah. would you rather? The answer is Walmart, and the reasons are exactly that, the product mix, and I'll say You know, people are shopping at Walmart. It is clear when you have $100,000 and more, 71% of those people are shopping at Walmart. They will win, add to it, back to school, which Walmart will win as well over Target because they have groceries and they have the people in their stores. So Target's problems are partially the consumer, a lot of it's self-inflicted wounds, and I think the stocks are telling a story right here.
2: I mean, consumers might be spending the same amount but mm-hmm. they have to make it stretch because they're getting less you know when you're paying 20 percent more for a bag of doritos year on year whatever the number is it's astronomical for snack food um, you're going to look for the lowest price and that could be a walmart bonoin. Yeah. so it's not the necessarily the amount but it's it's how it's how the consumer is making that stretch
1: and it's the offering of the private labels we've kind of spoke about this as well the, in the trade down you know one thing worth mentioning in this report is the valuation of some of these staple names and, and that, to me, really is the catalyst for the trade. Essentially, you're looking at some of these names that are trading at 24, 25, 26 times. And yes, there is some margin of safety there. But I think the, the, the question that this trade idea really poses is, at one point, is there some relative value? And I think that if we get through this earnings season, if we get through this earnings season and we don't see the deterioration of the consumer, that might be what is the at least a short-term tailwind for that Paris trade to actually work out.
2: What do you think of that pair? I mean, <clears throat> staples are expensive.
1: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. No question
3: about it. I listen, I think at a certain point maybe that makes sense, but I think the differentiation, the differentiation is going to continue in this environment. People are you know, I understand the health consumer money on the sidelines, balance sheet and all that stuff. Well, the reality is the reality is consumer debt has never been higher in this country and you know, as 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 long as the stock market continues to grind higher, Everything will be fine. But if something were to happen, like we saw in the fall of 2018, consumer spending stops on a dime. All right, here's a prediction. Uh, next oh, Monday, if you'll, take, ha- you if, if you'll have me back next Monday, Still I'll be bet too. you a pair
4: short Walmart, Lauren Target right here is going to make money week over week.
2: Long, short Walmart. Yeah, short Walmart. Long Walmart. Target. pairs trade. Pair trade. Yeah. Week over all right, week. All right, we'll see. Our next guest suggests affluent consumers are the key reason why overall spending looks strong. Stuart Saab is CEO of Current, a fintech company. Stuart, great to have you with us. You're you're seeing firsthand what consumers are doing. That's right. What are they doing?
6: Yeah, so at Current, um, we deal with the consumer, the uh, average, everyday American. um, And they're spending uh, on staple goods like you've just mentioned in Walmart, Amazon, Target, Home Depot, places like that. Um, That spending is rock solid. It really hasn't moved that much. Um, and, and so uh, what they are doing is getting less for their money. Um, and so for staple goods, that's obviously something that's new for Americans. That's just happened. Um, and you're seeing that roll into retail sales coming lower, um, retail uh, confidence. So the uh, confidence numbers are coming down on the indices. Um, and so from, uh, from a consumer point of view, they're saying, okay, I'm not getting as much money as I, uh, uh, I'm not getting as many goods for my money. Um, And then I'm having to spend more money through credit card debt. We hit a trillion dollars on that um, for the same goods. And so for the average consumer, um, they are not exactly struggling, but they're also struggling to make that money go as far as they, they traditionally would. So, Stuart, you guys yeah. obviously have a, this, this debit um, <clears throat> card and now you just introduced a credit
4: um, product here. So it's interesting when you think about like the average consumer and you think about the places in which they're spending. Are you starting to see some data that shows you just mentioned a trillion dollars in, in, in consumer mm-hmm. credit? Are you starting to see any sorts of shift that would te- like, lead you to believe that we're going to start getting to territory that feels uncomfortable for a consumer? That maybe many in your demographic are going to start to repay, um, you know, student loans, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I, and so I'm just curious do
6: track that. We do track that. We're not seeing any, we're seeing mixed signs is probably the, 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 the TLDR for us. From an affluent standpoint, um, which, we, which you guys have just mentioned, 22% of credit card uh, debt has been pulled down just now. So you've still got 78%. If you want to take a bullish view for the consumer, 78%. So for more affluent people with big uh, credit lines, the average household has $8,000 on their credit card from in 2019, 2020. So there's still some way to go for the more affluent households. of all mortgage rates are locked in below 6%. And so for for many people, they're not going to move house, they're not going to move jobs. And so if you want to take a bullish look from a more affluent point of view, there is some some dry powder there to go. Now for the average consumer, the average American who's trying to make those staples go as far as they can, um, I I don't think there's that much breathing room for them. And so um, credit building... Uh, is such an important uh, part of, of uh, and in your credit score is so, such an important part of your uh, APY of, of how much money you spend on your debt. Mm-hmm. We've never needed to look at that over the last 10 years, mm-hmm. right? So you've, you've got debt and it's just been like whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Now, because you're sensitive to that interest rate, you're now going to look at the inputs to that, which is like your credit score. And so we've got this product called Build, which helps people, everyday Americans, build uh, their credit with uh, their bank again. Mm-hmm.
2: What's your take on, on how consumers view that dry powder, that the remaining credit line that they can still um, use if the interest rate is 26 percent or whatever horrifying rate it is these days?
6: <laughs> yeah, I think this is what's coming into the psyche of like whether you pull down or not. And so definitely when it comes to mortgages and auto loans and things like that, you're probably not going to look at them too often. But when it comes to revolving credit, I do think if it comes to staples, which is starting to happen now, um, you are going to pull down on that line. You just, you're going to feed your children, you'll feed your family over 22%, 24% on that APY. And, that, and again, that's why I think that credit building and maintaining a good credit score in this time for, for people on 25 to 55K, somewhere around there, 75K uh, household income, it's a really, really important thing to do for this year.
3: In a former life, Stuart was a trader at <laughs> yes. Morgan Stanley. So it's great to have him on here yep. from his view What do you make of the bond market moves and some of the currency moves that we're seeing? Obviously, it's no impact on the stock market, but is it just sort of inevitability with that?
6: Yeah, good question. So I think when it comes to the retail stocks that you're seeing right now, you're going to I think you will see um, earnings beats and revenue misses. But overarchingly, what we're going to see is liquidity draining. So we're, the bond market's going to drain the liquidity. It looks like it's happening already. And so we'll see this sort of volatile to sideways move. And we're all going to make bets. I heard you make a pairs bet just now. So we're all going to be making these bets, but uh, and, and, and I'm sure they're smart, but I think over the next two or three months, um, the overarching uh, theme will be liquidity drain. We have too much issuance, the, the, uh, the, the Japanese market, is in turmoil, although the BIJ are doing a good job, I think. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think that would be the dominating factor over the summer until we get back, until everyone's back from, uh, from Labor Day.
2: All right, Stuart, it's always great to see you. Thanks for putting Thank your you trader myself. cap on. <laughs> <laughs> it off, putting it on, Stuart Sof of Current. Uh, Bonner, what's, what's your take on you know, where the consumer is based on what Stuart said?
1: I think it brings up some very interesting points. If you are tapping credit to source purchase of consumer staples, To me, I don't don't know. You can't trade down. You don't have an alternative. We can talk about fixed rates on mortgages, but how costly is it for you to tap into that equity to use that to propel purchasing power anyway? So for me, that that definitely raised the hairs on the back of my neck. I I think that is a telltale sign coming from a company that specializes in actually parsing that data.
2: Yeah, and, you know, Julie, remember last quarter we heard from, I think it was Dollar General who said that a lot of the customers are trading down to food banks and you gotta wonder if that's still happening at this point. I mean it's it's probably is.
5: Yeah, I would imagine that it's still happening. You know, the I think some of the good news is that if you look at the where the wage growth is really happening, it's more so in the lower income. But you know you still are seeing a lot of divergence among the retailers. And I think, you know generally speaking, kind of going back to our previous point, it really pays to pay attention to who is executing well and who isn't, right? Target versus Walmart. But Dollar General, Dollar Tree, you're seeing a huge divergence between those two names and it's about their execution and their ability to deliver something. So it's not even like a wage effect. I think you can find names in retail that are pretty oversold, but that are showing the ability to execute well. And I think they'll do okay.
4: You know, it's interesting. Stuart also mentioned that, you know, the, the percentage of homeowners who have these low mortgage rates. And then also, when you think about where unemployment is, and he used this term a couple of times, if you want to make the bullish argument, and I, and I see it. And I think that's kind of what Savita is also saying. She was here with us a few weeks ago and was kind of making that argument. I get it. It doesn't mean that it has to translate back into the stock market. It could be this is that soft landing scenario. And I'll just say as, as far as the stock market is concerned and the guy's point about, you know, investors in the stock market not caring about where interest rates are. You know, we are pricing soft landing. We're there right now. And so if you think about the stock market as a forward-looking discounting mechanism, it's discounting a lot of good news at the moment.
2: So if if, if retailers come in and they have terrible forecasts, Mm -hmm. is soft landing sort of less likely or does it not change? What retailers say is separate from what the economists see.
3: So I think that that's a fascinating question. I don't think it's going to change the narrative necessarily at all.
2: Which is fascinating, right? Yes.
3: I agree with that 100%. So I don't necessarily think it matters what they say. You, You made the point earlier. Why wouldn't they sort of sandbag in this environment? Because you can. The reality is, to me at least, I understand the soft landing through the lens of the stock market. But the soft landing through the lens of a lot of other things, to meet gets more and more difficult each day.
2: All right. We've got a news alert here on some 13F filings. Leslie Pickers got all the details. Les.
7: Hey, Mel. Some managers here appear to be doubling down on big tech during the run-up in the second quarter. Others crystallized their gains. Tiger Global in the latter camp here. Uh, Pairing back exposure to the sector, stakes in Alphabet and Amazon were cut in half. Microsoft was trimmed. The firm dissolved Apple. But Tiger did boost its stake in Meta by about 15 percent to hold two and a half billion dollars worth of that company at quarter end. And it bought a lot more NVIDIA as well. Other managers actually buying into the rally. Third point's Dan Loeb telling investors in a letter at the end of July that its exposure to Microsoft, AMD, Amazon and Google were, quote, undersized and the profits from those positions were offset by losses elsewhere during the quarter. We can see from today's filings that Third Point boosted its stake in AMD and Microsoft took a new position in Amazon worth about half a billion dollars at quarter end and actually sold more than half of its stake in Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. Appaloosa broadly bullish on big tech, though, boosting stakes in Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, Microsoft and NVIDIA and adding to Chinese tech names as well, whereas we've seen a lot of other managers really kind of exit that exposure amount.
2: All right. Leslie, thanks. Leslie Picker. And of course, the caveat is who knows if they're still in these things Mm -hmm. at this point in time, but we'll still talk about it. Julie, what's it out to you?
5: Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting noting where people are positioning themselves in big tech. And, you know, to me, there's just so much more opportunity in names that are maybe a little bit less heavily traded and you know hotly followed you know I think there's obviously opportunities that are very specific to Nvidia but you know the rest of the names it's still a real challenge to understand exactly how AI plays out and they won't really tell us how they think it's going to really trickle through their business model other than to say it makes it better so you know I think overall it's pretty expensive place to be and the expectations are extremely high and that always makes me a little bit uneasy
2: all right, coming up, sought-after steel, a new all-cash offer for U.S. Steel after the company rejected Cleveland Cliffs. More on the potential deal and how it's impacting the options markets next. Plus, some fast movers in the financial services space. PayPal naming a new chief as Schwab gives back its gains. How you should trade these names when fast money returns.
5: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. U.S. Steel shares soaring nearly 37 percent today, their best single day gain ever. The company getting a second take uh, over its bid in as many days late in this session with privately held Pennsylvania-based Esmark offering $7.8 billion in cash. That bid came after U.S. Steel rejected a $7.3 billion offer from Cleveland Cliffs on Sunday. Cliffs CEO Lorenzo Goncalves spoke about the offer on Squawk on the Street earlier today.
3: My offer is more than reasonable. Is a rich offer. So I believe that the company is worth what I offered. I am not doing any favors to them, but this is a deal for people that understand MA, not people that hide behind uh, consultants, not people that talk about the regulators and they don't have a clue how to deal with the regulators.
2: Cleveland Cliff shares were up by double digits for most of the day, but dipped after news of Esmark's. Offer. Goncalves also says that he's got the support of a key union, um, and so you're going to need that if you go through any deal, Guy.
3: He's not one to mince words either. No. I mean, these <laughs> stocks, no, exactly. These stocks, outside of a brief period of time where they all exploded the upside, have done nothing for 15 or 20 years. Let's just establish that. And it's got nothing to do with necessarily management. It's the environment. It's the industry. It's very difficult. That said, there's a reason why he's trying to move forward with this. They clearly see something in terms of the landscape and it's that resource trade that Tim Seymour talks about all the time so we can talk about deflation out of China we can talk about all those things the reality is these companies are entirely too cheap in this environment so I don't necessarily know if this deal is going to get done but I look at that and I continue to connect dots and we talked about the EWZ the Brazil ETF I think That's correct, right? EWZ, about two or three weeks ago. That's breaking out of a 15-year downtrend, and it's all about resources. So if you want to be in the space, that's the best place to be, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I mean, they moved to these mini-mills in which they melt down and they recycle metal instead of making steel from iron ore. So they moved to this new process and sort of a transition that's been going on. But, you know, this helps because it, it feeds into sectors like autos, Julie. I mean, if you believe that we are on the cusp of sort of you know the soft landing and things are going to open up and there's going to be more you know work for industrials you need all this metal for that
5: yeah I think there's definitely a case to be made but with all of these types of industries the real key is that you need scale And so consolidation to the extent that the FTC will allow it makes a lot of sense for these businesses because, frankly, they're extremely capital intensive and they're very challenging to run. I think, you know, this second bid is interesting, but the first bid has, you know, the vote of the unions on both sides. And I think that's actually going to be more material to winning it in this environment very specifically.
4: It's funny, when you look at this sort of activity in M&A and, and like a Cliffs, like this is a stock deal, right? So they're not taking a bunch of debt. They're not paying a lot of cash. It actually, you don't have that much downside. If this is something you could be committed to at a proper valuation at a Julie's point and you get the sort of scale that kind of makes you better compete on a global scale, um, it makes sense. And you basically put a floor under your own valuation too. So to me, I don't think Cliffs had much to lose. The fact that the stock
1: didn't trade down meaningfully on that sort of bid uh, tells you that. Yeah, they didn't have much to lose at all. I mean, I, the, the as Mark deal tells you, exactly, that they priced this thing in line. And I can understand what he's saying in terms of an M&A specialized deal, and you're looking at MPV and things of that nature, but the fact of the matter is that the enterprise value of this company, I believe, was 11 or $12 billion in March. So they're staring down the barrel at $7.8 billion, and they're saying, listen, this just, psychologically, it just feels like way too far from the high-water mark that we just had. So I would expect this to probably come back to the negotiating table and, and for them to find something, some compromise that works for both parties. But to Julie's point, I definitely think that the, the the scale is what's going to be necessary in, in this capital-intensive business.
2: Well, options traders are feeling very bullish that U.S. Steel will manage to get a deal done with someone. Mike Coe joins us to a look at the huge day for the stock's options. Mike.
6: Yeah, this one was one of the top 10 most active single stock options actually today. It traded well over 15 times its average daily options volume early in the day. It was the August 30 calls that were most active. Those were overtaken by the August 35 calls, over 22,000 of which traded for about 20 cents. Now, some of those late in the day were sold, but I think I should point out that it's a common strategy by the ARBs to buy stock and then sell upside calls to squeeze a little bit more premium out when they are anticipating a deal is going to happen. And I think that's the way that the ARBs are betting on this one.
2: For more options, thank you, Mike. For more options, action. be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. We've got a market flash on Discover Financial. The stock is down by four and a quarter percent after hours. Kate Rooney's got the details on this. Kate. Hey, Melissa. So the CEO of Discover Financial is stepping down. This is effective immediately. Roger Hosschild is stepping down as chairman and uh, president of the board here. Also CEO, all effective today. He'll stay on as an advisor of the board, Melissa, through the end of the year. The board, they say, has established a special search committee to find a successor. There is an interim CEO stepping up, John Owen. He's a current member of the board. He'll be the interim president and CEO. A bit unusual that this resignation, Melissa, is effective immediately. The release does not say why. But again, CEO of Discover stepping down and stock down here more than 4% after hours. Back to you. Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney. When you see a C-suite executive resign effective immediately, it does raise eyebrows, although they do thank Roger, the former CEO, for his 25 years of service. So it's not all just don't let the door hit you in the, in the back here, but Ooh. still.
3: Well, hopefully it's not a health thing. So let's get that out of the way. Yes. They reported on July 24th, less than a month ago, they reported there was no mention, no, nothing mm-hmm. even remotely close about something like this. So it has to wonder what's going on. Self first, ask questions later, right? That's to be the first thing. And then you look at this company, which made an all-time high a year and a half or so ago. It's been meandering around here. People are going to start to knock this stock down a little bit. So 98 now, probably lower in the, in the after hours and into tomorrow.
2: There is a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next.
1: Financial
3: focus. PayPal naming a new head honcho as Charles Schwab comes back down to earth. All the moves in the financial services space next. Plus, crude reality, oil off its highs as concerns grow over growth in China. So where are prices headed next? We're pumping into the energy trade ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. PayPal getting a push higher today after announcing a new CEO, Alex Chris, a senior executive at Intuit, will take the reins of the fintech company next month. Chris was most notably instrumental in leading Intuit's $12 billion acquisition of marketing platform MailChimp. He'll replace Dan Schulman, who announced back in February that he'd be stepping down this year. This had been a uh, a question mark. Now we've got some clarity here, Dan.
4: Yeah, I'm not into it, but listen, I'll just say this, okay? Like, this is company, and we've talked about it a lot after they reported earnings. It was another gap, two consecutive gaps in a row. And, and investors in fintech land don't care about valuation right here. If you just see the way they didn't care on the upside about a year and a half ago or so. To me, I think that sort of clarity, all right, I am into it a little bit here. I think it's pretty good. And you, it's a good fintech sort of um, transitional sort of leadership. So to me, I, again, I think in the low 60s, I think the stock is buying.
2: Uh, Meantime, Charles Schwab slipping another 3.5% today. Now even closer to giving back its post-earnings gains. The stock rose to nearly $69 in the days after its Q2 report last month, but is down nearly 12% since then. Um, Dan actually flagged the move.
4: Yeah, just really quickly. I'll I'll hand it over. I just think it's interesting when you see a a move like this off the lows, it was at the eye of this kind of regional banking storm and there was no fire there. It came back kind of hard. We had that gap after earnings and now it's filling in that gap. That's the only thing I'm trying to say is mind the
1: gap.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Bono. Yeah.
1: I mean, at 19 times forward, I just don't know if it's really compelling at this at this point. You look at the other competitors. I just think there's other places that you're more comfortable being. So I just. As, as Carter says, what is it, a pair of twos? I'm not really selling it, but I don't really see a compelling reason to buy either.
2: All right, coming up, energy pulling off, crude oil pulling back from recent highs as China concerns weigh on the space. So where's energy heading next? RBC's Halima Croft will join us next to lay out her take on prices and production cuts that interview when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. another check in the markets today. Tech stock staging a comeback, lifting all three major indices into the green to start off the week. The Nasdaq gaining more than a percent today, climbing back above its 50-day moving average. The S&P adding 0.6 percent, and the Dow closing up 26 points, its third up day in a row. And NVIDIA, take a look at this jump, more than 7 percent for its best day since May after Morgan Stanley named it to its top pick heading into earnings. The firm calling the recent sell-off a good entry point take a look at some homebuilder stocks after the bell. Berkshire Hathaway revealing in a 13F it had taken new stakes in DR Horton, Lennar, and NVR. And WTI crude pulling back slightly today after staging a rally over the past two months, but gas prices back on the rise, inching toward four bucks a gallon, levels not seen since June of last year. So what can we expect as we head into the end of the year? CNBC contributor Halima Croft joins us now. She's the head of global commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Halima, it's always great to have you, you here. Thank you for on having SAC. me. Um, I think it was the last time you were on was in June. Yes. And that's when the Saudis announced cuts. And it's all about the Saudis. It was that million barrel a day unilateral production cut. They announced it at the June OPEC meeting.
0: There was some skepticism. People were saying they're going alone. They couldn't get the whole band together. And we said the fact that they're going alone, the Saudis backboards with barrels. And it just showed their resolve to stabilize this market. I think the Saudi action combined with we have seen a Russian pullback. Remember in June when everyone was so... Worried about the oil market, they kept saying there's this armada of Russian oil on the market. Russian barrels are down 800,000 since January. We're starting to see Russian production pulling back, and there's still some macro worries about China, but the imports have held up. We haven't seen a drop off. And June was a monster month for Chinese buying. July softer, but August looks pretty good so far.
3: On a national security front. Yes. How important is it for us to replenish the SPR and crude seemingly getting away from us now? I mean, it was right there in the crosshairs right. a couple
1: months ago.
0: I mean, the Biden administration came out this summer and said, we're in buyback mode for the SPR. You know what they did? They just paused it. Mm-hmm. And again, I think this goes to the toolkit for the Biden administration. They're not going to do blockbuster SPR releases. They've paused buybacks, but they're having to rely on energy diplomacy. And what did we get last week? We got this informal Iran deal. They're not gonna call it a deal because they'd have to take it to Congress, but the Biden administration, they did the hostage deal. They're gonna get their six billion, but also it's gonna be go soft on sanctions. They basically want those Iranian barrels on the market. So it's gonna be about getting whatever barrel you cut on the market. They're making trips to Saudi Arabia, trying to get the Saudis to put more barrels on the market. They're having to fall back on energy diplomacy
4: like so you just mentioned China um and, and a lot of the economic reason re- they're not great, the no. over there, okay? So if they have a deflationary spiral going on right now, after the move that we've seen in crude, and again, you just highlighted the fact of the uh, of the Saudi cut, doesn't it set up for a tough move from here? We just got back to those highs from the spring or so, if you're looking at WTI in around here. Like, is this something you want to buy for a breakout here, or are you more focused on the weakness in China?
0: I mean, I think you have to have a wait and see approach parts China. It reminds me a little bit of 2015. Remember that China credit scare and everyone was like, oh my God, sell it? By the end of the year, Chinese imports had held up. And right now you have this macro wall of worry on China, but the Chinese oil import data looks solid. Now, some skeptics are saying it's going into inventory, but you look at refinery utilization. It looks pretty good right now. And so from the oil market perspective, it looks pretty solid. But again, you cannot overlook the risks on the macro side, but everything is pointing to on the supply side, Saudi resolve and China's holding in there on demand.
2: So if China, if if all the numbers out of China on the oil front look pretty decent at this point, even though the economic data is coming in soft, if there is some sort of bailout, um, you know, we're seeing the the biggest property developer, you know, go under practically, and and there could be some sort of stimulus coming. Signs of
0: strength in the broader Chinese economy. If you want to say, like, what's the dynamic when we talk about getting beyond this sort of 80-90 Brent range, I think you'd want to see strength in China, more optimism about the China story. Because the supply side, the Saudis are saying, we'll do whatever is necessary. So to Dan's point, are we sort of in this range at this point? I think we're in this range now. and I mean, we're in August. People are not at the office, thinly traded market right now. We want to go into fall and say, what does a macro picture look like? Are we going to see, if we continue to see signs of strength in Chinese buying, I think that will then be something that people are saying, well, look, there's a macro concern, but the Chinese data looks strong.
3: Most people can't say where a barrel of oil is, nor should they be able to. They know where gasoline is, though. Yes. And gas has gone up significantly right. over the last couple and of months. And there are
0: issues beyond crude. There are issues on refinery capacity. And again, this is a conundrum for the Biden administration. You've done the SPR you did these blockbuster releases. So what do you do? What's in your toolkit? You know, you can appeal for more U.S. production. U.S. production has been really strong. Remember, people said we'd never see 13 million barrels, capital discipline. U.S. production has been strong this year. But again, what else do they have in their toolkit? So that's why look for things like that Iran deal. Look for potential deals more on Venezuela. Look for the traditional call to Riyadh saying, help me out. Are they going to pick up the phone? <laughs> well, look at—we have this broader reset conversation. I mean, Saudi hosted this big Ukraine peace forum. You had Jake right. Sullivan there. Le- Saudi-Israel normalization talks. The Saudis are looking for help on defense, civilian nuclear. There's a potential deal to be done, but it won't be just about
2: oil. All right, Halima, thank you. Good. Thank great to you see for having you. me. Croft, RBC, Julie Beal, what's your take? When this goes back to our first conversation, the impact on the consumer.
5: Yeah, I think my big question would be understanding the impact of what happens if, you know, you see a real weakening in the U.S. consumer, how does that kind of ripple through oil markets writ large? Because I'd be really curious to kind of understand how that dynamic plays out, both in terms of, you know, actual volume, but really also in terms of the the psychology of the global markets, too. They seem pretty sensitive uh, and a little bit emotional, I might say.
1: Yeah, and another thing is, I know we've had a significant amount of U.S. onshoring, but I'm also curious about the effects of hurricane season, right? Like, so it just does seem like somewhat of a perfect storm, possibly for the consumer looming, albeit d- d- like the SBR release, there have been steps taken to kind of mitigate some of those risks.
2: I mean, when a hurricane comes, it's a bad one, and e- you're easily well over $4.
1: bucks. we are going to start talking about heating
3: oil as we get yeah. into the fall and the winter without question. That's why, as you know, two of the letters in my what do they call those things dan acronyms, acronyms. yeah that acronyms or in the energy <laughs> space by the doesn't way doesn't matter
2: which one is which those,
3: they're interchangeable but you know what's not interchangeable halima croft's position on the mount rushmore of energy people i mean she's she's locked chiseled into that sucker it's interesting. She's the best. Um, but,
4: but it's interesting that the dollars regained some ground. If you look at the Dixie, it's back at one hundred three. It kind of falling out of bed a little bit. I wonder if we were to get more dollar strength, what that might mean for crude here. And to a point that you asked, it's a great question if we're going to call Riyadh. I don't think they're picking up. You know, you know what I'm saying? So um, I think you, you probably had that one nailed.
2: Coming up, electric slide. Tesla shares in reverse over the past month, and new price cuts in China aren't helping the pain. So will the stock keep falling? Well, we see a Tesla turnaround? In DeSantis versus Disney, around Brian Sullivan sitting down with the Florida governor for an exclusive interview. What he had to say about his ongoing feud with the media giant. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Tesla lower today. The EV maker announcing a fresh round of price cuts in China, affecting both the Model Y and Model 3. Today's stock drop adding to a rough ride for Tesla, down nearly 15 percent over the last month. The shares have been below its 50-day moving average for six straight days, but are still up more than 94 percent this year. Dan Nathan, where do you stand on Tesla now? So a tough
4: one. I mean, listen, you know, how many price cuts have we had here in, in, in Europe and in China? And China, we just talked about these deflationary readings. They don't seem to be abating. And this is a company that is in a price war with lots of local competitors, and they're relying on manufacturing there at a time. And I know that they said on their last call that Shanghai, the, uh, the gigafactory is going to be shut down for some retooling and that sort of thing. I just can't imagine that the Chinese business is going to be particularly good this quarter, and it's going to continue to weigh on margins. And that's the story. And that is one of the reasons why I've been very bearish on the stock despite this price action that we saw, I guess, in late spring or so after they reported a very bad Q1. And I thought the Q2 was not particularly great. So expect further margin pressures. If margins go lower quarter over quarter, I just don't know how this stock stays much above $200. Are you still short? Yes. Are
1: you long still? No. No, you're not. No, I was not. I, oh, I, th- I thought you were.
2: Sorry.
4: It
1: was NVIDIA. It was a Tesla right, right. options trade. I do know what you're okay. speaking about. It was a Tesla's options trade, but no, long-term holder, no. I think you have to play this to play the trend in this name. The fundamentals, honestly, I'm not even going to try to wrap my head around them because I don't think they matter. I don't think the valuation matters. I think you have to play momentum, and this thing has broken down, and I think you continue to ride that until that trend Resets. I'm not nearly as bearish as Dan is, but with that said, I do think that like it just doesn't look good as it is right now. I think if the lever that they're using is price to compete and to squeeze others out, and that's the only lever that they're not going to have that won't be offset by something else within their, within their structure, I think that, that, that does not bode well at
2: all. Well, in any growth industry, you use price. I mean, the dominant player usually Fair. uses price. You squeeze them out, and that's the way it goes. That's how you gain market share. That's how you make the other competitors go out of business. Why is this any different?
3: they've always had the market share number one. I mean it's been theirs to lose and and they've talked about their margins being better than the historic or the 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 OEMs of like the Fords and the GM so the fact that now their margins go from 24% mm-hmm. to legacy automakers 16 16 and a 17% is a problem now if you tell me you're going to make it up on the volume side okay I can buy that but if your margins decrease and volume isn't there to support it, that's a problem. And quickly, despite the fact that Tesla went from 110 to 300, which was crazy, the stock is still down about 44 percent from its all-time high of November of 2021. Important to point that out.
2: After the break, DeSantis's Disney dispute, the Florida governor weighing in on his feud with the company, what he told her own Brian Sullivan in an exclusive interview that is next, Fast Money is back into.
1: We lead the nation in new business formations. Unemployment is incredibly low, great fiscal posture. People are bringing capital into Florida. This is a great place to do business. Your competitors all do very well here, Universal SeaWorld. They have not had the same special privileges as you have. So all we want to do is treat everybody the same and let's move forward. I'm totally fine with that, but I'm not fine with giving extraordinary privileges you know, to one special company at the exclusion of everybody else.
2: South Florida Governor Ron DeSantis speaking exclusively with our own Brian Sullivan and addressing his very public fight with Disney. DeSantis taking aim at Walt Disney World's special tax district, a tentpole issue in his feud with the company and urging CEO Bob Iger to back down for the company's lawsuit against the state of Florida, which alleges a targeted campaign against the entertainment giant. So do these latest comments by DeSantis spell more trouble? For Disney, he was appealing directly to Iger when he was saying, your competitors all do fine here and they don't have these special tax privileges. Um, Julie Beale. it sounds like he's sort of digging in for the fight, though.
5: Yeah, it's kind of a, an unusual position to be taking, right, you know, going after your large, one of the largest employers in Florida, you know, who has quite a halo in terms of its brand. I mean, he's going to outlaw puppies next, I assume. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a challenging position he's got himself into because I don't think he has a lot of public support for him. He doesn't make a bad point in saying that they have special treatment, but I think the way that he's gone about it is problematic. You know, as for Disney, I, I, I think they've borderline been enjoying this because it's really pretty clear that they have the upper hand on it. But I don't think long term it's a real problem for them. I think their own problems are homegrown.
4: You know, I, I agree with Julie, and I would just say this, is that his polling in the Republican primary is not going particularly well. And so once he goes down into, like, single digits or something like that, ultimately, he'll probably be out of the race. And then I'll bet you Bob Iger sits down with Ron DeSantis and they iron this thing out in an adult-like way. I just really do think that this is, like, one of those culture war sort of issues that he thinks works for him in the Republican primary. And I think, to Julie's point, it's not polling particularly well, not even in the state. So,
2: so let's say this gets resolved. Does the stock pop or it didn't really have any too much impact on the downside, so there's no impact on the upside?
3: I thought the stock, when it popped after earnings, after they announced, obviously, they were going to price hikes, that was, to me, a moment in time where we can make an argument that that was the worst for Disney. We're right back where we were. Prior to earnings, this is where it
1: closed the day of earnings, which is not particularly good. Melbs, unfortunately. Yeah, on a way. I think it's relatively a non-event. I, I don't think there's yeah. much stock reaction one way or another. Maybe you get some of the the the, the, the uh, short-term bots that are like trading on the back of news, but I think that quickly gets flushed out.
2: All right. Well, do not miss Brian's full exclusive interview with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis that airs tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on The Last Call, right here on CNBC. Up next, final trades.
5: Let's go around the horn. Julie Beal. You know, if T.J. is a little too big for you, too rich for you, Ollie's is more of the under the radar uh, indie industry. Bono and Ison.
1: I know it looks like the stock is kind of chopped out a bit, but I would still wait on Foot Locker.
2: Dan.
1: Uh, yeah, we were talking about PayPal here. New CEO. Um, this guy
4: presided over a company that traded well over 30 times earnings for years is trading at a 52 week high. It's probably a good choice here for a fintech.
3: I'm looking out in New York City's Times Square, yes, and there's yeah. a Nasdaq heavy band that's playing in. I think I saw Adina Friedman doing backup vocals. You
2: know I can't turn you you around. Can you can turn know. around. I'm going to turn around.
3: See, there's a band there. I'm not even. Do you think okay, I'm making a band there? <laughs> no, it's a Nasdaq band. Uh, EWZ, as we mentioned earlier, Melissa Lee.
2: All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
7: warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash fast money Disclaimer.
8: Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.